We are in Mark chapter uh, 7. Mark chapter 7, and we're finishing up the chapter today. It's verses 24 to 37. You know, here at Trinity, we, uh, we value going through books of the Bible, um, expository preaching, as we call it. And the idea is that we don't want to skip over any of God's Word. And so if it's in there, we want to get to it. And so there's a little difficult passage that we're going to tackle today together. It's a short little parable of Jesus, sort of a one-sentence parable. Uh, but yet it teaches us so much. So there's some rich theology that we're going to look at today. Of course, some very practical implications of what's happening. But just to sort of um, catch up for where we are, you know, we've been looking at the book of Mark, and Mark is um, all, in his gospel, is all about discipleship. What does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? So we call it the way of Jesus, because that's what Mark is doing. Us is doing. He's showing us the way. How is it that we become disciples? And even in his writing style, he's taking us all the way to the cross and to the resurrection of Jesus. That's where he's leading us. But he needs to kind of build his case and he needs to paint the picture and unveil the scenes that help us get there. Does that make sense? Even like as a storyteller. And so he is recounting different things that happened along the way. Uh, walking with Jesus and being with him, recounting stories that he's heard. And, and so we, we are following right along with him. And as we are on the way of Jesus, Mark makes it clear by using the word immediately quite a lot that um, there were many things that happened and um, they're all tied together. And if you remember where we've been recently, we were looking at uh, Jesus healing. Remember, he fed the 5,000. He was healing people and casting out demons and healing those that are sick. And today is no different, but we need to kind of see the context because um, we, what we saw two weeks ago when we were last in Mark, we noticed that um, Jesus was talking to the religious leaders and he was talking about their hearts. He was saying, basically, if you remember, he was saying to them, you think your traditions are keeping you clean because you think you're so pure on the inside and you're trying to just keep the outside from defiling you. And he said, you got it all wrong. And he said, you are on the inside as unclean as it can get, as you can possibly get. And he says, it's really a heart issue. It's a heart condition. And so now we see Mark, he kind of leads us continually in that direction. But here's what we're building to. And we're going to see it um, in the next couple of weeks when we get into Mark chapter 8. You remember there's a, a really pivotal point in the relationship between Jesus and his disciples. Do you remember when he asks them, who is it that people say that I am? And then he says, who do you say that I am? That's coming up in a week or two. And see, these stories, um, Mark picks out purposely to get us there because he is unveiling the true identity of Jesus. And we see people still not getting it. Not having the ear to hear or the eyes to see, their hearts are still hardened. You see, and so Mark is kind of making his case and providing it. And so as we're on our way to that pivotal point when he says, okay, who do you say that I am? Who do the people think I am? And who do you say that I am? We get to see stories like this. Today, we're going to see two separate stories in our passage, and they are stories of healing where Jesus encounters a woman whose daughter, young daughter, is possessed by a demon and 
pleads that Jesus would heal her. And then we see Jesus encountering a man who is deaf and mute, can't hear or speak, and he heals him as well in a different way. Two healings today, but there are two words that we want to focus on. If you remember nothing else, two words that really come into play. Today is all about the intersection of humility and faith. We're singing songs of faith today. We're going to see what it took for people to have faith in Jesus, what Jesus was looking for, and very simply, what is faith? What does humility look like? Because Jesus is trying to teach us some really important things about him, about his kingdom, and about the heart of the Father. And so as we get into it, uh, I'm going to um, I'm going to read this passage, and then after we read it, I uh, just want to show you a map to kind of give us some more perspective about where we are, and then we were going to... Um, we're just going to kind of park on a few different aspects of this story and look at faith and humility in light of Jesus' healing, first of the woman's daughter, and then also of the man who is deaf and cannot speak. So here's what it says in Mark 7. This is verses 24 through 37. It says, And from there he arose, and he went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon, And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know. Yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, so listen to this carefully, he said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. Then He returned from the region of Tyre, and he went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment, and they begged him to lay his hand on him. Taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears, and after spitting, he touched his tongue. And looking up to heaven, Jesus sighed, and said, Ephatha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened. His tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak now we've seen jesus heal people before he's done it in different ways we've seen other people come and fall at the feet of jesus we've seen him cast out demons we've seen him heal people up close and he's done it afar and today we see some intercessory faith we see a woman interceding on behalf of her demon-possessed child and we see some friends it doesn't say who they are It says they brought this deaf mute man to Jesus. 
And he doesn't heal him from afar, does he? He does it in a very personal and intimate way. So let's look at these two um, stories just briefly. But we're going to look at them in light of these two important words. Humility and faith. Take a look at this map that we have here just to give you an idea. Uh, even if it's just a broad overview, you can see where Phoenicia basically was and Galilee at the bottom. So it just gives you an idea, of course, over to the left there is the uh, Mediterranean Sea. And so just the idea is to say, okay, here's where we are. If you see that little circle there towards the bottom right where all those arrows are, that's the Sea of Galilee. And so it's kind of where we've been talking. So Jesus has been ministering in and around there. Capernaum is on the coast there. And so it says at the beginning of our passage that he went, right, he went up to Tyre. And then right around there, it's not on the uh, map, just yeah, it is straight up there is um, Sidon, okay? And so that's where Jesus went. It's pretty far, right? Now today, it wouldn't take us very long. Probably took them about three days at least to get there, traveling on foot, maybe on donkey, we don't know. But they traveled all the way over there. And Jesus went there. We're going to talk about the significance of that. Then he traveled up further to Sidon, right? A very similar type of city. But then when he goes and he meets the man who is deaf and mute, look at where he goes, to the Decapolis Decapolis is simply called that because it was a grouping of ten cities. Okay, Decapolis. Grouping of about ten cities that were important. Travel all the way down. Now, wouldn't you think that the people who were kind of, you know, uh, in charge of his itinerary, you know, like his travel agents, the disciples who were in charge of that would have said, how about we just kind of go to the Decapolis first and maybe we can make our way. But he kind of seemed in some ways to have gone the long way, went all the way around there's reasons for that. Jesus always has his reasons. So Jesus goes up to Tyre and then Sidon, and these are cities that were kind of bustling. There's a lot of commerce there, but here's what we need to know. Historically, for a long time, these cities that were well known to be hostile towards the Jewish people. They were hostile towards the people and the children of Israel. They were not Jewish strongholds, these were through and through Gentile cities. Very significant. Because where does Jesus go every time he goes into a city? We saw it in the book of Acts, right? Every time he goes to a new place, Paul does it too. Where do they go? To the synagogue. They go to the synagogue. Why? Because the gospel comes to the Jew first. But what this shows us is Jesus is also showing yes to the Jew first, but not to the Jew only. He goes to Gentile territory, an area that is well known to historically be hostile to the people of Israel. So practically speaking, he's trying to get away. They wanted to go, and he says they they arose, they went to that region of Tyre and Sidon, and they went into somebody's house, a Gentile's house. He's trying to get away with his disciples once again. You remember his ministry primarily at this point is to his disciples, right? Remember he tried to do that? When they came back from their first short-term missions trip and he brought them back and they came back, they were so excited. He's like, let's take a break. You get on the boat and we'll go and we'll take a quiet time. When they got there, when they got back on shore, there was a huge crowd waiting for them. And Jesus taught them and then he fed them. That was the feeding of the 5,000. He had tried to get away, couldn't do it. He's trying it again. And he gets there, they go into a house. And still, it says the crowds, it says immediately a woman heard about it, right? It happened immediately. But here's something interesting. Think about this. Let's keep it in the context. So he goes into a Gentile territory, 
hostile to the people of Israel. It's, um, it is also then uh, significant that he goes into a Gentile's house. According to their traditions, which we had just seen in the last passage, right? Their tradition says that you are unclean if you even go near or, God forbid, touch a Gentile. Ritually, you are unclean. You cannot then offer a sacrifice. You cannot go and worship in the temple. But Jesus, a Jewish rabbi, a Jewish leader, enters the house of a Gentile in Gentile territory. What is he trying to say to us? And so Mark puts that in there purposely. So we're getting this picture, right? Remember in the last passage when we talked about last time that was a heart condition? Jesus said it's not about your traditions. Remember said that he made all uh, food unclean? Uh, I mean clean. He's just like all unclean foods he's clean. He says there is nothing unclean anymore, Jesus says, by his actions. He's saying it's not about those traditions. Don't worry about Clean foods, unclean foods. It is all clean. It's all acceptable. I give you freedom through the gospel. So we see that was the case, but today it's more about the gospel of freeding, freedom making all people acceptable to God. You see, it was about the food last time and the traditions. And now he's saying no matter where you come from, no matter how it is that you are broken, no matter what society says about you, He says, you are able to come. The gospel is for you too. So he goes into Gentile territory. And who is it that then in our stories accepts by faith the good news of the gospel and the the healing from Jesus? It is two Gentile people who are broken that Jesus really, according to tradition, um, he should have no contact with. He should have no business with them. And so we see how this story unfolds. So he tries to get away with his disciples. Um, the priority of the master is important to be with his disciples to teach them to encourage them to support them to watch over them they are his sheep but also going in a radical way into gentile territory right that also shows not only the priority of the master and his teaching but the priority of his mission so let's look now at this first scene of um, Jesus and this woman, okay? It says very simply this. It says, uh, verse 25, immediately the woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit, means she was possessed by a demon. She heard of Jesus. She found him. She came and fell down at his feet. It says very clearly, the woman was a Gentile, Syro-Phoenician by birth, so she was from that area, okay? She begged him, cast out the demon. So then he says this really interesting thing. Verse 27, maybe as you were reading it, you were like, I don't understand, because it's so curious. It's actually a little parable that Jesus says in verse 27. So this is Jesus' response. Now, parents, you can understand, your child is demon-possessed, sick, needs healing, whatever it is, you do anything that you can. Bring, and you just come before Jesus. Now, the daughter is not there, but she's coming before you. I know you can do it. Can you please do this for my daughter? And this is the response that she gets. Let the children be fed first. For it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Now before we see her response, what do you think about that? All she wants is for her daughter to be healed, to be well. And he says, let the children be fed first. It's not right to take the children's bread, throw it to the dogs. 
So let's think about it. So who are the children? What's the bread? And who are the dogs? Now, what we do know, it's quite unfortunate, but, um, but back then, especially Gentiles were called dogs by the Jews. And the Jews considered themselves children of Abraham, children of Israel. And so in one way, there's a couple of ways to read this. I think they're both accurate and applicable. But we see, first of all, Jesus saying, let the children be fed first, meaning the gospel goes to the Jew first. In a way, Jesus, we don't think of him this way, but in a way he's rebuffing the woman. She says, come and heal, and he's basically saying, the gospel is for the Jew first. He goes, let the children be fed the good news first. For it's not right to take the children's bread, the people of Israel, bread meeting the good news, the word, his presence, and throw it to the dogs. It goes to the Jew first, then to the Gentile. Interesting. Just kind of bookmark that in your mind. But here's something else. Jesus is also telling this little parable. Let the children be fed first. I think we could take it this way as well. I'm sure he meant it both ways, at least. Let the children be fed first. Who is he trying to spend the most time with? His disciples. See, and so again, once again, time after time, the crowds are pressing in. And he says to her, let me take care of my disciples first, my children. And he goes, it's not right to just take time from them. The children's bread, not not right to take time from them and then spend it with the Gentiles. That's what he's saying. So here's the thing. Do you think Jesus was being derogatory towards her? Was he putting her down? Was he rebuffing her? What did he not care about her need? I think we're going to see as Jesus chose to test her faith. Jesus is looking for people of faith. Think about the context again. He did not find it in the people he was hoping to find it most with, and that was the Pharisees, the religious leaders, the ones who had zero faith, who did not believe and trust, and they were all about their traditions. He was wanting people of faith. And he's even saying, it should be to the Jew first, to the children. How about my disciples? But he sees an opportunity. Is she a woman of faith? And so he says it in such a way. But you know, being Jesus, he knew that she would at least understand the application. And so here is not only a picture of Jesus expecting faith. Look at her response. A response of faith and a response of humility. She says, but she answered him. Yes, Lord. First of all, it doesn't mean Lord like she recognized him as Messiah. It's a a sign of respect like, sir, Like, yes, sir. Yes, Lord. Yet. She responds to Jesus. Yet, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. This is so great. She's kind of playing a little game with Jesus in a way. She's kind of speaking back with her own little parable in a way. She's saying, so here's what she's saying. She's saying, yes, you're right. You do not, by all accounts, by tradition, by the law of the land, you don't have to pay me any time, any respect. Yes, I'm a dog. I'm a Gentile. And yes, you are the Messiah to the Jewish people. Yes, you are right. But 
And she kind of twists it and turns it right back. But in a humble way, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. She's saying, Jesus, okay, I'm the dog in the story, right? Not a ravenous dog. The, the, the word in Greek, it's important, is for like a pet dog, a little dog. Some of you have those little dogs, right? Those little pet lap dogs. It actually means like lap dog or pet dog, right? The one that could just be under the table and like they eat, they're just waiting for the crumbs to fall off. She says, okay, if I'm the dog, I'm just waiting. I'm just wait. I'll take the crumbs, Jesus, because that's how much I have faith in you. I'll take the crumbs. Yes, I get it. The food on the table is for your people, the people of Israel. But even the dog can have the crumbs at the same time that the people, that the children are eating at the table. See that? She's like, it, it can be the same time. Jesus, yes, spend time with your disciples, but can I just have the crumbs just enough to heal my daughter of the unclean spirit? Is that not humility? See, I don't know, has, have we even encountered yet in Mark somebody who actually gets the parable the first time and responds in faith and humility the way he is looking for it. And what does he say? You can just picture him. He's just, yes. Man, I wish the Pharisees understood it the way you do. Right? A poor Gentile woman. Man, what a statement. And he says, for this statement, you can go your way. And she was probably like, no, don't send me away. And he says, the demon has already left your daughter. So he healed the daughter of the demon, not even being near her. And she went and found her just that way it was. She was lying in bed. The demon had gone. Beautiful picture. So this woman responds in faith and humility, recognizing her position at the time, recognizing Jesus didn't owe her anything, but she came before him in a position of humility. She fell at his feet and she said, I have faith. I'll take the crumbs. I believe I have faith that even the crumbs from you, Lord, will be enough to heal my daughter. That's what Jesus is looking for. Church, is that the kind of faith we have? Are we willing to have a humble faith? To have a faith before Him that says, yes, Lord, you don't have to do it, but I know you can. Would you do it? Would you do it for us? Look at this um, very familiar passage in Hebrews 11. In Hebrews 11, I just want to show a couple of pieces of it. It's a long passage. The whole chapter talks about faith, doesn't it? Hebrews 11. This is just a couple of um, highlights from it. But look at this. Hebrews 11, the first few verses, it says this. It says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Right? For by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the Word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. It's a definition of faith. Then he goes on, he says, by faith Abel, by faith Enoch. And then in verse 6, he's listing all the people that had faith from the Old Testament, remember? He says in verse 6, without faith it's impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. Very simple. Believe. He goes on then. By faith Noah. By faith Abraham. By faith Sarah. He keeps listing them. These all died in faith. He said, not having received 
the things promised, but they saw them from afar. By faith Isaac, by faith Jacob, by faith Joseph, by faith Moses, he goes on. By faith the people crossed the Red Sea. By faith the walls of Jericho fell down. By faith Rahab, on and on. And then look at verse 30 to the, to the end. And what more shall I say? For time would fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, David, Samuel, the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release, so that they might rise again to a better life. All of that was by faith. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not even worthy. Wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. I feel like I should read that. Like five more times and then we can go home, right? Isn't that amazing? All of these things the writer of Hebrews is listing out by faith, by faith, by faith. Without faith, you cannot please God. All of these people accomplished all these things through God's help by faith. Verse 39 and 40. And all these, though commended through their faith, they didn't even receive what was promised. All of these, though commended through their faith, they didn't even receive what was promised to the fullest, right? Since God had provided something better for us, that apart from us, they should not even be made perfect. Man, what a passage of Scripture. You should write that. Read Hebrews 11. Do it often. People of faith. See, that's what it takes, faith. And Jesus sees faith in the woman But it's a faith that starts with a position of humility. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, For by grace we have been saved through faith. It's not of our own doing. It is the gift of God, not the results of works, so that no one may boast. Right? It is by faith that we receive that grace of God. The part that faith plays in salvation cannot be saved apart from faith, cannot please God apart from faith. Faith is believing. Remember what we said at the very beginning of Hebrews. Faith is the the assurance of things that are hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. That is faith. But then we move on. In our last few minutes together, we move on to um, the scene with the, the deaf man who also could not speak. It says that he had returned from that region of Tyre. He went all the way down. Remember the map? Went all the way down through Sidon and the Sea of Galilee, the region of the Decapolis, those ten cities. And it just says they. It doesn't say who they were. Kind of like, remember the friends brought the lame man and went through the roof to meet Jesus like that. There were some friends and they had a man who was deaf and mute, which means he could not talk. It says in the ESV, he had a speech impediment. They brought this man to Jesus. They begged him to lay his hand on him. The woman fell at Jesus' feet. The friends beg him. Let's not, let's not miss that point. See, church, that they didn't just show up and like wait in line and Jesus is like, okay, next. Like, 
They fell at his feet. They begged him, Jesus, would you do this? Did you ever come before the Lord and plead with him? God, would you take this affliction away from me? I beg of you, Lord, help me to get that job that I so desperately need. They come before him begging, pleading, before him with a posture of humility, but they do it out of faith. And so here it is, these friends, they come and they bring him, and it says that Jesus takes him aside from the crowd privately. He does something interesting, but first let's look at, let's look at this. So the woman approaches Jesus with humility. The man is standing there, and Jesus is about to do something to him physically. It also takes humility for a Gentile man to receive anything, especially the laying on of hands of a Jewish rabbi. See, remember to keep it in context. Let's look at humility for a moment. Philippians 2, 1 through 11. If there's any encouragement, Paul says, in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus who, though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped. But what did he do? He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We are to emulate the humility of none other than the Master, the Lord Jesus Christ, who, being in very nature God, did not consider that equality something to hold on to and not let go of. He let it go so that He could go and be the sacrifice that we needed. The perfect act of humility. So we are to come before God in faith, but in humility. So then it says this interesting thing, right? Here's the scene. They brought the deaf man, and it says, taking him aside, here's what Jesus does. Jesus takes his fingers and puts them in his ears like this. Right? Goes like that. And first of all, what if you're the man? Put yourself in the guy's position first. The Jewish rabbi is a gentle man, and his friends just kind of pushed him up and said, heal our friend, please. We love this guy. Would you take care of him? Jesus looks at him. Now, he had just healed the woman's daughter, who was miles away, but he comes to the man, and he sticks his fingers in his ears. And then it says, he spit. And then he touched the guy's tongue. Now, I don't think he spit on the guy's tongue. Okay, you might read it that way. He probably spit on the ground. He's done that before, right? He spit and mixed some things with dirt. He's done that before. He spit on the ground. Back then, they, they equated um, our saliva with healing properties, right? Could kill germs and stuff. And so he spit on the ground. He's got his fingers in the ears. He spits. And then he obviously takes one of his fingers out and it touches his tongue. Then he looks up to heaven and he sighs. So can you just picture it? His friends are looking. He's like this. He spits. Grabs his tongue, looks up to heaven, and he sighs. And he says the words, 
Ephatha, which means be opened. Ephatha. So check this out. If I say that, you can't hear me. What if I say the word, which was in Aramaic, the man would have understood Ephatha. I think he would have understood it. Right? We know that there are deaf people, they can certainly read lips. Right? And so you enunciate a little bit more and they can understand it. So Jesus says, be opened to his ears. Loose the chain of his tongue. It's really what the Greek language says there. Ephatha. So the man who could not hear knew what Jesus was doing. Is he not the coolest or what? Right? That's what Jesus is doing. And so he is bringing healing to the man, but he's doing it in a very intimate way. Because then it says his ears were opened, his tongue was released. The language there shows that it's like his tongue had a ball and chain on it, and Jesus unlocked it and threw it away, and now he can speak and he can hear. But what's funny is this. I had to laugh. What happens after that? Jesus says, shh, don't tell anybody. The guy couldn't speak. And he couldn't hear. And Jesus heals him. And he's like, but don't go tell anybody. He's like, yeah, right. And he goes and he just tells everybody. Because, of course, we know that, right, from past. The more Jesus said that, the more people went out and told. But almost like, can you blame the guy? Right? And then it says, finally, they were astonished beyond measure. They said, he has done everything well. He even can make the deaf hear and the mute speak. So a few more minutes together and we're done. Everybody's amazed. Again, this is leading to what we're going to see in a week or two when Jesus finally confronts his disciples after all these things. Healing the demons, healing the sick, feeding the 5,000, teaching them, trying to get away, all this stuff. And then he finally says to them in chapter 8, he says, who do the people say that I am? And who do you say that I am? Mark is building his case. Here is Jesus, the one who has power over the winds and the waves, the one who has power over demons, the one who can heal sick people even from a long distance, or he can put his gentle hand on you. See that? He does that. The church, we have to recognize that Jesus doesn't just interact with us from afar. You know, we might go through our daily routines and not even recognize that we are envisioning God as one who is far away, who is out there, so to speak. But we believe Jesus is near. It's a picture of the incarnation, isn't it? That Jesus came and tabernacled with us. He lived among us. It is Emmanuel, God with us. And Jesus heals the man by touching him. Don't we often need, as broken people, don't we need, as people who are hurting, don't we need, when there are times when we feel like all hope is lost, don't we need the gentle touch of the Master to come alongside of us? He even, so beautiful, he takes the man, says, let's get away from the crowds, and he pulls him aside. The only, he would only really do that with his disciples. He pulls him aside right away, the Jewish rabbi, the Gentile man who is deaf and mute. The Jews would have seen him as unclean. Pulls him aside, touches him. Jesus breaking all the rules. And he says, come here. And he touches him. Almost like he's speaking sign language. He puts his fingers in here, touches his tongue like I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take my fingers out. You're going to hear. I'm going to remove my hand from your tongue and you're going to be able to speak. 
He does the spitting like I'm curing you of all disease and germs and everything that is unclean, that Satan would want to bind you. I am the God that's over all of that. It's amazing. But these two individuals, they approach Jesus and he recognizes in them in different ways faith, but also a sense of humility. And I end with this passage in Isaiah 35. You know, Isaiah 35 is a great passage. We're not just going to read two verses, but in Isaiah, this is a picture of the future blessings to Zion. It's called the people of Israel. This is looking forward to the millennial kingdom. When Jesus comes back in all righteousness and glory, he comes back as judge to judge the living and the dead, to come back and judge and set up his kingdom that will last for a thousand years. And so this picture in Isaiah 35 is a great prophetic word about what the people of Israel have to look forward to. Redemption by the Messiah. And look at what it says in Isaiah 35, verses 5 and 6. This is what they're waiting for. The eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Shall, and then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. That's what the people of Israel are looking forward to. And many in the crowd would have known this passage and understood it. And he's saying, I'm here. I'm offering the kingdom. I am the Messiah. I'm the one who can bring this. He does it for the woman and her daughter. He does it for the deaf and mute man. He does it for them physically. And he can heal us just as sure as he created us. But it's also a great picture of how he heals us spiritually and the promise of future glory. And the promise of that one day where there will be no more tears, no more pain, no more need for surgery and casts and all of that stuff. You see, when, um, when I went under the knife, as they say, it was actually my first time having surgery. Never had surgery before. I'm 48. I think it's a pretty good track record. Never had a cast before, right? And so I didn't know what to expect. And so they had to put me under. Gave me like a sedative, had to be on my stomach. I won't give you all the details, of course, but, um, but then they had to numb me from the waist down. I had kind of what I think is like um, an epidural, right? And so I was to give birth, I guess, I don't know. And so, and so um, it was weird, but I was kind of awake for the whole thing. But I was kind of in and out, and uh, to be honest, I, I, the nurse would come and check on me, and I could, you know, it's like you're in a daze, right? And you're talking, and she's like, oh, so what do you do? And I told her, I'm, I'm a pastor, and I got this whole church praying for me. And, and I start asking her, hey, do you go to church? And I'm like half asleep, and she's <laughs> probably like, this guy's crazy. What kind of church does he go to? But I just remember in and out. But, you know, here's the thing. It's an interesting thing with surgery, right? We, can, we all know the application. Like, the doctor had to go in and purposely hurt me. He had to go in and make an incision and cut me and cause blood to come out and all of that good stuff. He had to do that purposely, but what, for what end goal? Healing and restoration. He had to go in and take the bad stuff out that was causing the pain and the injury and heal it. And then he put it back together and they used these things called anchors. He used these anchors to anchor it all back together so that it would heal and over time, those anchors, they just get then enveloped into the bone. And the bone just grows on around it. They don't take them out. See, don't we have a hope that's called an anchor 
for our soul. That great hope is the return of Jesus, but it also we recognize that he died. He rose again. What a hope that we have a healer. He may or may not heal our physical and mental and emotional illnesses now on this side of heaven, but he promises full and complete healing with a glorified body and an eternity with him where there's no more need for any of that. But see, but just what a simple picture. But the doctor did it. Why? Not because he just needed to have like his 100th surgery. He did it for the goal of healing. He did it for my best interest. He said, yeah, it's going to be painful recovery, but it's going to be worth it. Sometimes God brings us to a place of pain, of suffering, of difficulty, where maybe he's chiseling away as they had to chisel the bone out of there. And he had to, sometimes God does that with us right in our heart because Jesus says the heart is the issue. He's just looking for people of faith to come to him like children. To come to him and say, Jesus, yes, I know, I know, but, you know, I know you're so busy, God, right? We say that sometimes, but how about just some of the crumbs from your table? But yet, how much does he love us? He wants to give us more than crumbs, but we come to him with that, with that heart attitude of humility. Jesus, I know you can do it, but would you do that for me, please? And then do we have the faith, which simply means do we trust him? Do we believe that he is who he says he is, that he can do what he says he did do and will do? And do we trust him? When I went under the anesthesia, is that not a picture of trust and faith? I had no control whatsoever. Who knows what that, I mean, the doctor could have technically done anything, right? And Claudia was like, I should be in there and just make sure I know what he's doing and see what he's doing. But right, like, the idea is that we just completely trust. They give you the needle, you start to feel good. And then you wake up and it's all done. But what complete trust we have to have, that he knows what he's doing, that he's going to do it for my benefit and do it to the best of his abilities. Don't we have to have faith in a God who knows what he's doing, can do it to the best of his abilities, which there's nothing better and no one better, and he's going to do it for our best interest always? And we just simply have to come by him, for we are not saved by our own works, for by grace we are saved through faith, we simply receive that gift of salvation, which is free to us, but cost Jesus everything. And so we move into our time of the Lord's table.